I'm Garrick, and this week Timothy and I are looking again at the problem of evil, but from a different angle. This week, we'll be talking about the evidential problem of evil. Well, according to the evidential problem of evil, the amount of evil in the world makes it so unlikely that God exists that it's irrational to believe in God. But is that really true? We don't think so. And in this episode, we'll show you how to respond to this argument. Along the way, we take a look at a song entitled God's Love from my favorite punk band, the only punk band I like, Bad Religion, a punk band that has a PhD for a lead singer. To learn more about the question of how a good God can allow evil in the world, take a look at the book called The Problem of Evil by Jeremy Evans, published by our friends at B&H Academic. The name of that book is The Problem of Evil, and the author is Jeremy Evans. To learn more about this book and many other outstanding apologetics resources, go to bhacademic.com today. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Welcome to Three Chords of the Truth. In the last episode, we started a three-part series on one of the most important issues for a Christian to be able to deal with in apologetics, and that is the problem of evil. And we looked at the logical problem of evil. But then this week, we're going to move to another problem of evil. As we said last week, there is not one problem of evil. There are actually three problems of evil. And the one we're looking at this week is the evidential problem of evil. How can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? But before we do that, we are going to do what you look forward to each week, and that is the Toy Box Hero Tournament. And this week, it is each of our third children, I believe, that we're looking at each week, and we have taken toys from them, and we are trying to determine who will win in this particular contest. And so, what do you have from your child, Garrick? No, no, you have to go first, because as I told Timothy before the episode, I have chosen the unbeatable toy, the absolute unbeatable toy. There's just even more unbeatable than a red panda. So if I would have chosen this toy for the last battle, even the red panda couldn't have come out on top. So you have to go first. Well, I don't know, because this isn't a powerful animal. This is an animal that can be more than one thing. It is a pillow pet. 
pig. Mm. Yes, a pig pillow pet. This very, is a. It's very close. I can't make out that it's a pig yet. It is a pig pillow pet. And I love pillow uh, it pets. Is, oh, aren't, they're wonderful. I they wish you could wonderful. have them as adults because uh, <laughs> otherwise it just looks kind of weird. But nonetheless, a pillow pet, of course, it can be a pillow and it can also be a pig at the same time, which is relatively amazing. But here's the best thing about this one. My third child likes pigs a lot. And she has named this one Bacon Ham Sausage because in her own words, at one point earlier in her life, she said, pigs are the greatest thing because I like them alive and I like them dead. And she... And so, so here we have something. It is, it's a pillow, it's a pig, and it is also meat. It's a triad. It's a holy trinity of good things, pillows, pigs, and meat, all in one creature. How could anything possibly <laughs> defeat this? Oh, oh, I'll show you how. Yes, the pillow pit is a triad of sorts, but the pillow pig is not part of the triad. Do you know who is part of the triad? Baby Jesus. Our youngest child, our two-year-old, has their little people nativity scene out. And because we're not Presbyterians, we go ahead and put <laughs> Jesus out there. And as soon as I had to use, I had to go to a toy for our youngest, that's when I usually am like, oh, there's just no chance. Like, all she has is stuffed animals and things to chew on. And, kind of, and then there it was, shining like a beacon on our kitchen floor, essentially, baby Jesus, who's unbeatable. unbeatable. Put Jesus on your kitchen floor. I mean, that's, I, I <laughs> that's usually so. This nativity scene does not like stay out, right? Because she's two, right? This is not. This is not decoration. This is. Oh, she's done eating dinner, and we need her to play with toys while the rest of us try to finish eating. And this is one of those. This is one of those toys. So there you have it. I mean, folks, but I, I think there's this thing in Philippians 2 called kenosis. Does the son not hold all things in his hand? And <laughs> did he not continue, even in the womb of his mother Mary, continue to hold the universe together? Yes, he did. I think that even as an infant, that he could take care of bacon, sausage, whatever. Now, as a Jew, he couldn't eat bacon, sausage, ham. That was actually my name. No, I knew you were going there. I knew you were going there, but he doesn't have to eat it. All he has to do is vanquish it. You know how he takes care of bacon, ham, sausage? He puts a demon inside of it, and it runs off of a cliff to its own death. Yep, that's right. He's already fought pigs and Satan, and he's defeated death. I'm, I don't think he's afraid of a pillow pet pig. There it is. I have to, I'll have to yeah. concede this one, because yes. once you introduce Jesus, you kind of Jesus juke the whole <laughs> the thing. Ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate Jesus juke. I, I got so excited about this <laughs> when this happened. I was like, I'll never, ever top this. This should have been, I should have saved this for the, the end of the season so that our last toy box hero ever. So it's all downhill from here or uphill. You know, I think <laughs> people get that saying wrong, but whatever. All right. So we're talking about this week, the evidential problem of evil. But before we do, we wanted to take a few minutes to talk about something very important to us, our sponsors, our subscribers, all of that. Yeah, we want to take a few minutes to express our appreciation. First, for our listeners, right? All of you who every few weeks you download whatever craziness it is where 
we're talking about and doing on here. And you listen and you come back for more, you gluttons for punishment. And we are super grateful for you. And especially of those of you who not only listen, but interact with us in any of the various interwebish venues that you can do that, social media or, or through our website or, or whatnot, which usually should be posted in our show notes. But we also kind of want to spend a little additional time saying kind of a special thanks for those of you who have kind of gone above and beyond the call of duty and you've moved from friend and consumer to financial supporter. And we just need you to hear that we don't take that for granted. And we are really appreciative for those of you who have gone to our Patreon website at patreon.com forward slash three chords and the truth. And you've decided that for the value, for the cost of one cup of coffee, well, an overly fancy and overly sugared cup of coffee, but a cup of coffee for one cup of coffee a month, you've said, hey, I value, appreciate, love what you do. And you've sent us dollars. We're super thankful for that. And maybe someday there'll be so many of you that I can send kids to college or something like that. Who knows? Or buy lots of Lego sets or, you know, whatever. No, just kidding. But thank you. Thank you for those of you who've already done it. We don't do this for money, obviously. This is for the fun of it. But those of you who have shown your love through your support, we just couldn't say thank you enough. And hopefully there's more and more of you all the time. And we're always thinking and talking about how we can add more and more value to not only the content of the show, but for folks who decide they want to financially support us. And so the best is yet to come. That's what we think. So thank you again. We love y'all and are grateful for you. And from very early on, when we actually just started having Patreon, which we didn't start the first year, we didn't start it until this year, actually pressing, trying to get people to sign up on Patreon and support the program, there's been a handful of people who have been there almost from the beginning, jumped right in early on in this. Brian, Chris, Jonah, Lisa, Karen, Jeremy, Jessica, and Brandon, they've been with us since the early part of when we had Patreon and just really are thankful for each one of you and thank you for your support all the way from close to the beginning of this. And you all that are Patreon subscribers, you are evidence of good in the world. Mm. You're evidence of the goodness that is there in the world. And so it's kind of the inverse of that, what we're changing to right now, to talk about the evil in the world. You all are examples of the good in the world. <laughs> but there's also evil in the world. And we're going to talk about the evidences, the evidential problem of evil, and what that means for the problem of evil. So, Garrick, remind our listeners what the problem of evil is, actually. Okay. So what we talked about last time is we set it up as, and talked about this as, what's the logical problem of evil, right? And, and it is that the objection is, the accusation is, is that one cannot believe that God exists or that this God who exists is all-powerful, all-knowing, and completely good, perfectly good. You can't believe that in the face of the existence of evil, right? Those two things can't both be true. And so we talked a lot about that. This week, we talk in different terms. This is still a philosophical problem of evil, if you if you will. And we call it the evidential problem. And essentially, it's very similar, right? The premise is statement number one, God exists. And statement number two is there is evil. And the, the evidential accusation doesn't say, oh, those two things can't both logically be true. Instead, the evidential problem is, listen, given 
the reality of evil, the probability that God exists is very low. In fact, the probability that God exists, a good, powerful, all-knowing God, is so low, given the fact of evil, that belief in God is, is irrational, that his existence is completely unlikely. That is what we call the evidential problem of evil. And there's a song by the band Bad Religion that's entitled God's Love that just expresses this argument so clearly. Now, we don't talk a lot about punk music on this program. It's, I don't think it's the thing that either of us are really into. But at the same time, Bad Religion is one of the few punk bands that I will occasionally listen to because they actually have a, a good melodic sensibility. There's kind of this kind of three-part harmony going on at times. What I really appreciate about it is even though I disagree with what they're asserting, that they actually have thoughtful things about religion and faith and the world. They're thinking about what they're saying. And this particular song, God's Love, is one of those that does that with the evidential problem of evil. And there was a band that were formed all the way back. I was surprised when I looked this up. They were formed in 1979, just outside of Los Angeles. I didn't realize bad religion had been around that long. And they they disbanded in 85, but they got back together in Eight. 1986. What yeah. happens? Everything good happens in 1986. Even a punk band comes back together in 1986. And the core of their band has always been Greg Graffin. And what's interesting about Greg Graffin actually is he's got a PhD in zoology from Cornell University. I mean, he is a he's kind of smart. brilliant man. Yeah. He is yeah. an absolutely brilliant individual. He is what we would call an atheist, but he actually rejects the term atheist. He calls himself a naturalist. And what he means by that is somebody who believes that nature explains all things. So he calls himself a naturalist rather than an atheist. But here's what I really appreciate about Greg in this is he admits, and this is his words right here. These are his words. Naturalism is a belief system. There are so few atheists, naturalists, whatever you want to say, that will admit they actually have a belief system, that there are certain basic beliefs that at some level they are assuming that they cannot necessarily prove on the basis of empirical evidence, and that therefore it is at some level a belief system just like any other system. All systems have a measure of belief. But he says, naturalism is a belief system. And then he goes on to say, a lot of scientists bristle at that. But we all have to believe we can find truth. Evidence is my guide. I rely on observation, experimentation, and verification. That's a really interesting admission on his part that I actually really appreciate. And his faith lies in the fact that those things, that the scientific observation is the most accurate, most infallible guide to truth. That's where his faith lies. And I contrast that to somebody like, say, Jerry Coyne, who wrote the book Faith Versus Fact. And Jerry Coyne, he asserts something that would be laughable if it weren't that so many people take it seriously, which Jerry Coyne says, you shouldn't believe anything unless you have empirical evidence for it. 
But what's what's interesting about that statement is his own statement can't meet that qualification. <laughs> he can't come up with empirical evidence for his statement that you could only believe things. You should only believe things that are based on empirical evidence. At least Greg Graffin admits, look, it's a belief system. There's something I'm accepting as a basic starting point that I can't necessarily prove, but I'm going to work from that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that honest atheism that he really has. But he has the song on their album 2004 called Empire Strikes First, which let's just admit, that's a great title for an album, yes. a very punk title yes. for an album in every way. Much and more, the name of the song. Much more punk than the Christmas album that they put out, which I recently discovered, which, listen, a punk band with an atheist frontman singing not like Jingle Bells, but O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. As I look through the songs, it's like there's more theology in Bad Religion's punk Christmas album than there are in a lot of contemporary Christian artists who have done Christmas Yes, albums. yes. <laughs> so there we have it. We're definitely linking to that, friends. Oh, we are definitely linking to that. So they've got this Christmas album that you ought to at least take a, a little bit of a listen to. It may not be something that you like, but at least take a listen to it. Try it out. But they have this album that is Empire Strikes First, 2004, that has the song God's Love. And let me just read you some of the lyrics of this song, God's Love. While viruses prowl for helpless victims, and just thinking about it right now, this is before COVID. This is before coronavirus. This is 2004. And they're singing this song about this, about viruses. He says, while viruses prowl for helpless victims who succumb rapidly, tell me, where is the love? In a careless creation, when there's no above, there is no justice, just cause and no cure, and a bounty of suffering, it seems we all endure. And what I'm frightened of is that they call it God's love. Mm. That's some of the key lyrics of this particular song, God's Love from Empire Strikes First. And the key phrase in that is a bounty or a plenty of suffering, it seems we all endure. What he's saying right there implicitly is there is simply too much evil and suffering in the world to believe in God's love. That is the evidential problem of evil. That's what people are saying in the evidential problem of evil. That's what they're asserting is that given the sheer amount of evil and suffering in the world, it is irrational to believe in God, not because it's a logical fallacy to believe in God, but because it is a fallacy based on our experience and our observation of all the evil that's in the world. It simply means the likelihood of there being a good God is so low that we should dismiss it as being something that is irrational. Now, it's much harder to refute this evidential problem of evil, not because it's so so much stronger, but because it's so much more amorphous. It's just saying there's so much evil, therefore it's irrational to believe in God. But I want to talk about three 
key problems with this evidential problem of evil, this evidential argument against the existence of God based on the sheer degree or amount of evil in the world. Here's the first problem with it, and it's the incalculability of evil. So what it's asserting is there's so much evil that it makes it unlikely or low probability to believe in God. But let's pause for a moment. How exactly do we measure how much evil should there be in the world and how much evil is there? Does somebody have a cosmic evilometer to be able to calculate the amount of evil in the world? And, how, and, and at what point, how many points does it count for a death? How many points does it count for cancer? How many points does it count for, and we could list all sorts of things, how many points does it count against God that this or that happens? How do you calculate evil? How many points can there be that it makes God's likelihood, the likelihood of his existence, diminish in some way? So that's the first problem with this evidential problem of evil is just how do you calculate evil? The second one is, and I think this is the crucial one, it's a failure to include all the relevant data. Here's what I mean by that. Let's suppose that this fall or winter, I traveled to Alaska. Now, those who know me well know that that's never happening, okay? (laughs) That is just not happening. There is no point in any fall or winter season that I am going to Alaska because I despise everything below 60 degrees with a passion. And so there's no chance of this actually happening. But let's suppose I did. Let's suppose I did. Went to Alaska in the fall or the winter, and I started counting all the hours of the day when I can't see the sun. And at the particular point in the winter, there is no sun visible at all. But if I just say, you know what, I'm going to calculate all the hours of the day that have no sun, and I'm going to conclude on the basis of that, that there is no sun at all. Well, anybody with any rationality would say, you can't do that because you'd have to include all the data from the whole year. You can't just include the data from one particular snapshot in time. You can't include data just from Alaska. You have to think of the world as a whole. You have to think of the cosmos as a whole. You can't selectively choose evidence from one particular place and then extrapolate out to everywhere else. You have to count more than just those hours in one particular season in one particular place. And I would say, exactly, that's the point. An extension of that, one, even if you could calculate these things, and even if you did calculate all relevant data, what's the proper ratio? Like, at at what point does evil have to outweigh the good to lower the probability of God's existence so low that it's irrational. Exactly. That's one of the things of that brings the first and the second of these problems together, incalculable, and at what point and, and what data do we count? And I think also included in this, if we include evil and suffering, if we count that, let's just even grant for a moment it is calculable, countable in the ways we're talking about. Let's just suppose it were. If we count the evil and suffering in the world, we also have to count the pleasure and the beauty and the joy. You can't count only the darkness. You have to count the light as well. And so just thinking about it as a, at a very practical level, cancer, it's a horrible thing, and it takes people's lives and it destroys people's lives. And 
not for a moment am I going to downplay the awfulness of cancer, but part of the reason that it's so awful is because far more people don't get cancer than do. A child being an orphan, that's an awful, terrible thing. But far more children have a, a living, caring parent than those that don't. Famine, and a famine that has, strikes a people and, and destroys their livelihood, that's horrible. But the fact is, is that we notice the famine and we rightly see it as a horrible thing precisely because it's not everybody all the time. There is pleasure and beauty and plenty and joy. And I'm not downplaying the awfulness of famine or cancer or being an orphan. But the point is, is that we have to assess all the data. And if we look all the, at all the data, we're going to find more people don't get cancer than do. More people have a, a family that loves them than don't. And so on and so on and so on. We have to look at all the data. You can't just choose the evil data because that just confirms what you're trying to prove. You have to take into account all the goodness and beauty and pleasure and joy and plenty in the world as well. And I know this is a philosophical discussion, but if we bring theology into it, evil gets its definition from the good. We call things evil because in them, we recognize that something is wrong, something is distorted, something is missing or twisted or, or, or whatnot. And so, if one is to recognize evil, then you must admit that there is also good. And if your argument is that the existence of evil makes the existence of God very unlikely, and you stop there, it's like you're ignoring the presence of good, and then you're not willing to have a discussion of, well, okay, what does the presence of good, what does the existence of good then make likely? They're not having that discussion. And that is, I don't know if intellectually dishonest is the right word or not, but you're you're not willing, you're not looking at the whole picture and, and having a discussion in, in light of that. Yeah, we recognize these things as awful precisely because they're exceptions to what is typical. And we recognize evil as evil because there is good and because we, we know good. We know that there's good. And because of that, we recognize evil as evil and rightly do. But we have to take into all these things into account. And so we've got two things thus far that kind of weaken the problem of evil evidentially, the evidential problem of evil. First off, how do you count evil? How do you calculate it? You don't have an evil-o-meter, and so how do you count and calculate evil? The second one is, to do that takes into account all the evil, but doesn't take into account all the data, because to really have an honest assessment, you would have to count not only the evil, but also the good. Now, there's a third objection that I think is probably the objection that is the one that Plantinga, Alvin Plantinga uses at one point, and I think others have used this and used this very, very well, and that is this failure to distinguish between low probability and irrationality. So, let's think for a moment about this. This is not as difficult to understand as the logical problem of evil, but there's some difficulty here that we've got to work through. And that is low probability does not equal irrationality. In other words, if something is low probability, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's not rational to believe in that. It just means that it's unlikely, but that doesn't mean it's irrational to believe in it. So put it another way, even if we grant it, even if we grant it, 
even though I don't think this is true, I want to grant for a moment that the probability of God's existence is extremely low given the amount of evil in the world. I don't believe that's the case, but I'll grant that for a moment for the sake of argument. If we just say the probability of God's existence is extremely low because of the presence of evil in the world, it still doesn't necessarily follow that it's unreasonable to believe in God. Now, the way that Alvin Plantinga expresses this is in telling this little thing about <laughs> FICA the Phrygian. That's and right. so let's take a look at FICA the Phrygian. Yeah, yeah. So FICA the Phrygian, it's this statement, right? It's saying some things, making some claims. The first claim is that FICA can swim. There you go. That's pretty forward. Nothing wrong there. Well, the issue is that FICA is a, a Phrygian and nine out of 10 Phrygians can't swim right? So, the probability that FICA can swim, given the fact that he's Frisian and 9 out of 10 Frisians cannot swim, the probability then becomes 10%. There's a 10% chance that FICA can swim. That's a very low percentage of chance. You are not going to want to put money on FICA in a, a swimming match knowing this information, right? That's the objection. Low probability. It's very unlikely that he can swim. Well, Here's the issue. We know some other things. We know that FICA is a not just a, a Frisian, but he's a Frisian lifeguard. And guess what? 99 out of 100 Frisian lifeguards can swim. 99. Now, I don't know how the other one got in, got the job. His uncle owned the That's swimming right. pool. That's right. I was about yeah, to say, his, he knows. His uncle owns the swimming he pool. He knows and, That's right. <laughs> you don't want to be swimming the day that, that one out of 100 That's right. is the lifeguard. <laughs> but, but this extra piece of information that we know is a part of the equation, like Timothy said, we're taking all of the relevant data into consideration. Well, suddenly the probability becomes 99%, which is way different than 10%. So that's kind of the classic way of, of answering it. Now, us being nerdy Star Wars fans, we have a much more fun way to think about it. Yeah, when I teach this in class, teaching apologetics, I talk about Jar Jar Binks. Now, Jar Jar Binks, as you should know, is the least liked and least likable person in the entire Star Wars universe. Oh, Mooi, Mooi, I love you. you! Almost got us killed. Are you brainless? I speak. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Now get out of here. No, no, Mrs. Stay. Missy called Jaja Binks. Missy, your humble servant. That wouldn't be necessary. Oh, but it is. He's the least liked good character, right? I mean, like, I dislike the Emperor more than Jar Jar because I'm a Christian, right? And I'm a good person, but. I'm a Christian, and if I had to sit down to eat with somebody, <laughs> I'm still going to I'm still going to eat with Emperor Palpatine over okay. Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> Only if I'm wearing a rubber suit, but okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So, so let's just think about it. Nine out of ten Star Wars fans, I think we can safely say, despise Jar Jar Binks. It's probably nine higher, out of ten. I, it's probably it, it, is. like nine and a half, nine point <laughs> seven five. But okay, well, just to keep the numbers easy. So we'll go nine out of ten Star Wars fans despise, rightly so, by the way, Jar Jar Binks. So the probability of meeting anybody who's a fan of Jar Jar Binks is extremely, extremely low. But that doesn't mean it's irrational to believe that somebody likes Jar Jar Binks, especially if you happen to have some additional information. Because I've noticed something. 
five-year-olds have terrible taste in movies and five-year-olds tend to think Jar Jar Binks is hilarious. They tend to think he's an amazing character and suppose that I know the individual person to whom we're talking is a five-year-old and a five-year-old who has terrible taste in movies. And let's even suppose that that five-year-old has a Jar Jar Binks fan club t-shirt and that Jar Jar Binks fan club t-shirt demonstrates this five-year-old child's commitment to love and to enjoy and to appreciate Jar Jar Binks. Now, suddenly, because of that additional information and that knowledge that 99 out of 100 five-year-olds like Jar Jar Binks, suddenly, if I'm talking to a five-year-old, the likelihood of meeting somebody who likes Jar Jar Binks is a lot higher. So, What does all this have to do with the problem of evil? Well, one thing it has to do with the problem of evil is the fact that Jar Jar Binks exists. And and that's actually, that's that's part of the problem of evil. But beyond that, what it demonstrates is that even if, even if we grant that the likelihood is extremely low for something, you may know other information by observing everything and knowing more about what's going on that actually gives reason to believe in something that the likelihood of it is extremely low. And you can think about this even in really practical, simple things, even things like the chances of likelihood, uh, the likelihood of success in the D-Day invasion, June 6th, 1944, the likelihood of that invasion being successful was extremely low. But we all know it happened. And given the other information we have, it's reasonable to believe in that happening. And it was even at the time reasonable to believe that it was at least possible for something to happen. In other words, we don't base that which is real and that which we believe in on the basis purely of probability. We base it on evidence. And that's the issue we're talking about here, is that what makes it reasonable, rational to believe in something isn't probability, but rather evidence. And sometimes you can have evidence that even though something is improbable, makes it very, very likely that a particular thing is true or did happen or could be true, even if the probability of it is extremely low. Now, I want to add one more thing about this, one more weakness to note about the evidential problem of evil beyond these, and that's kind of looping back to something we talked about in the first episode of the series on the problem of evil, and that's this assumption that suffering has no possible good purpose. Kind of bound up in this evidential argument is an assumption that suffering can have no possible good purpose. And if we think about it, that's just another expression of the noceum argument we talked about, that idea of I can't see any purpose, therefore there must not be a purpose for suffering. And you see a hint of that in that song by Bad Religion, God's Love. He says in another part of the song, he said, well, we twist in torment and we make believe there's a truth and we all submit. Believe my eyes, my brain replies to all that they interpret. And so what he's seeming to say there is if I can't see a reason why, there must not be a reason why. If I can't see it, it must not be there. I don't see it, therefore it isn't there. 
And what that is, is an example of that no argument, which as we talked about in the last episode, just because we can't see it doesn't necessarily mean that it is not the case, especially with something that is dependent on or connected with an infinite God and a very long history and a multiplicity of possible reasons. A no argument is not a valid argument in those particular instances. Yeah, I was going to say earlier that we've been talking in terms of the probability becomes higher dependent on some other information, some other things that you know, but also because we're talking about an infinite being in a extremely long history, it's also possible, maybe even probable, that there is additional information out there that we do not know. Information that makes the probability far higher, even though we aren't aware of it, which affects the rationality. Because I would make the argument, if God is who I believe he is, then the probability of that type of information, that extra data being out there, but me not being aware of it, is very likely. And thinking of it slightly differently, that based on the evidence we have of God incarnate in history and the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that changes many of these things. It changes these perspectives because if, in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead, and I believe that there is good evidence that he was raised from the dead based not merely on some sort of a theistic faith in which I just take this without reflecting on it, but rather based on the evidence historically that I believe in a resurrection, then suddenly what that means is the infinite has intersected the finite. A God of some sort or a power beyond us has intersected this time and place, and suddenly that additional evidence actually changes the equation. There's something beyond us. There's something infinite. There is something that can bring life from outside into this world. And that brings me to another bad religion song, which is entitled Live Again. And there's a a phrase in that song that is so fascinating to me in which he says, what good is something if you can't have it until you die? What good is something if you can't have it until you die? Now, what is he assuming in that? He's assuming that what we have in this life is all there is because there's nothing beyond this life. But if there are reasons to believe there is anything beyond this life. If there's anything beyond after you die, and especially if that after you die lasts forever, then something that is good that you don't get till the next life actually is really is good. (laughs) There is a good to it. And it introduces this idea of maybe there are reasons to endure suffering, maybe there are reasons to believe, maybe there are reasons to trust beyond what our eyes can actually see. And according to Paul, the sufferings of this life join us with with Jesus in some sense, join us with his sufferings, and they open the door for all of us to be able to, all who trust him, for his goodness to be given to us not only in the future, but right here and right now as well. And as we think about that, we recognize that there are other factors that can change the whole equation if we take into account the whole of the evidence and not just one part of of the evidence.
Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. Dr. Greg Graffin from the Almighty Bad Religion. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Except for the Almighty part. No? I don't know if we're the Almighty. All right. The mediocre bad religion. Well, that's going a little too far the other way. What about the mighty bad religion? The palatable bad religion. Well, it's only slightly better than mediocre. All right. I like bad religion very much.